This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. I uh, hope to do kind of a practical session here, although we're going to do a bit of history first. So um, I hope you all admire my clean and spare design aesthetic to kind of <laughs> emphasize the practical. Fortunately, the uh, AV people upstairs um, have let me know that the 1990s have called and they want their slides back. Um, so uh, anyway, I, yeah, I, I'm an old-fashioned guy. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, a few different things that are related to big-scale exhibitions. Uh, we will go through a little bit of the history of it um, and then talk about what it's like today. Um, I want to give people a sense of what the different choices are to be made when you're, if your institution is dealing with uh, large-scale exhibitions, whether you're producing things out of your own collections, um, looking for content out there in the world that you can create something large out of for your own audiences, uh, whether you're bringing in someone else's large exhibition and what that means nowadays as opposed to what it used to mean. Uh, and, uh, and, and maybe a little bit about uh, if you're interested in touring uh, exhibitions out there. It's, um, it's an area that is quite interesting from a risk perspective, which makes it a good thing to talk about here. Um, so we'll start with a little bit of history first. I intentionally used the word blockbuster in the title of this because museum people hate the word blockbuster. Um, absolutely loathe it. Um, and it's interesting to look at the term itself for one second. So obviously it didn't exist. For some reason, Google's engram takes you all the way back to um, the 1800s. But um, uh, it didn't exist until the 40s. And nobody actually knows where the word exactly came from. It's possible that it was, um, it was a terminology that originated in the UK for um, bombs that were dropped during uh, uh, World War II attacks like, um, like the Blitzkrieg, and they were obviously blockbusters, one big explosion, um, similar to a large-scale exhibition that's one big boom. Um, the other um, even worse explanation for the word is uh, from an American vernacular, kind of right around the same time, about um, non-white people that would move into a neighborhood and bust the block, um, uh, send the real estate prices uh, going down and encourage white flight and all that kind of thing. So from those two wonderful sources come the term blockbusters. No matter, no, no wonder everybody hates them. Um, but you can see, interestingly, in the graph how the usage of the word has just taken off over time. And we'll, t and we'll take a look at um, uh, uh, what that meant historically. I did want to start out with one thing that um, does not show up on this chart at all. And it's just such a strange, weird outlier. Uh, an anomaly, and it has to do with um, something that took place down here, and I just had to share it. So this is a painting that some of you may have seen. It's hanging in St. Paul's in London, and uh, it's by William Holman Hunt, uh, and it's called The Light of the World. And it was the original painting uh, was painted in 1854, and it's actually in Oxford. Um, and William Holman Hunt um, was a founder of the pre-Raphaelite movement, um, but he, he found his fame and uh, fortune as well doing uh, sacred religious paintings. And this was the first one he did. And it gained quite a reputation. And I had no idea 
uh, what, what kind of reputation it actually had gotten. But what happened was in 1900, so many people had wanted to see it that um, he did a couple copies of it. And, and this is actually a copy that um, his eyesight was failing at that point. And he had somebody in his studio do the copy for him. So this isn't actually even an original painting. It's a reproduction of a painting done in his studio. And it came down and it toured Australia and New Zealand. And four million visits were recorded for um, this painting down here. Um, there were only four million people in Australia at that time. And there were about a million people in New Zealand. So out of a total potential catchment of five million, um, four million visits. Now I'm saying visits because I can't believe that four million visitors came. Maybe they did. Um, but that's a, that museum trickery of visits versus visitors. Um, but it's still absolutely extraordinary. And even more so, this is how it was transported <laughs> around um, Australia and New Zealand. Very impressive. Anyway, like I said, that has nothing to do with the actual history of blockbusters. But um, I thought people would appreciate that. Um, the uh, the 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 other there's a couple other pieces of prehistory that are pretty interesting. Um, some of you may have heard of this exhibition that was in 1930 at the Royal Academy. Uh, it was um, one of the largest exhibitions of uh, of a country's um, artworks that had traveled outside that country at any point, and it was sent uh, to London by Mussolini, um, who. Uh, quite interestingly, was using it as a piece of propaganda uh, to show how wonderful Italy was. Um, and 540,000 people in London um, uh, bought into Mussolini's scheme and came and saw the exhibition. And it was one of the largest of the sort of modern exhibitions that had ever been held at that point. Um, we had one of our own here in Australia. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't find any photos of it anywhere. So this is the cover of a book that was written about it. Um, it was uh, called the Herald Exhibition of French and British Contemporary Art, uh, and it was held in 1939. And um, only one public gallery was courageous enough to show this exhibition, and it was the Art Gallery of South Australia. Um, the National Gallery here in Melbourne and none of the galleries uh, up in Sydney uh, would take it because they were afraid of offending uh, um, the, the current zeitgeist, which was largely promulgated by Hitler, uh, about degenerate art. Um, and so it was shown at the Melbourne Town Hall, uh, and it was shown at the, at the art gallery that was built into the David Jones department store in Sydney. Um, despite that, 70,000 people came out and saw it, and it was an absolute triumph. It was open until 10 p.m. every night in both cities, and um, it, it, it did sort of set the stage for, for that sort of big scale exhibition down in this part of the world. Um, the modern use of the word blockbuster, though, it actually doesn't come in until about 1972. Um, and you, you, these start to become quite familiar to you, I think. So this is the very famous um, Tutankhamun exhibition. Um, this is the British Museum. Um, the British Museum were the organizers of it with the government of Egypt. It was a, also sort of similar to the Italian example. It was a pivotal moment for the country of Egypt after the Seven Days War and very difficult problems with the government there and bringing their treasures out uh, meant a great deal. Um, 1.6 million people came to see this exhibition at the British Museum. Eight hour long queues were not uncommon, but it really exploded when it went to the US. There you go. Um, it, um, 
uh, attracted 8 million people across the US. This is uh, in San Francisco. You can see the crowds there. Um, and um, TUD exhibitions have done amazingly well. There was one at Melbourne Museum here in 2011. It was actually the one after this one, so it's the one that followed it up. Um, it did phenomenal, phenomenally well as, as well. Uh, again, the modern concept of a blockbuster really revolves around this first TUD exhibition. Um, I put this one up because um, we've seen too many photos of the tangerine psychotic the last couple of years, and Ozzy's love to see a little bit of Gough Whitlam. He's sort of the good balancing uh, act to Donald Trump. Um, and the Modern Masters exhibition in 75 was a, was a, a big um, kind of a game changer for Australia um, in the 70s and sort of put, put uh, the blockbuster on the map down here as well. And I have to mention this one as well. Um, for my New Zealand friends that are here, they'll know what Timaru was. Uh, it was the first major uh, exhibition of the, uh, of, the, of the sacred and spiritual treasures of, of, of Maori that had ever left the country before. And it went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and 300,000 people came. And it was a watershed moment for uh, a very small country and for the pride of a country and, and, the, and the recognition and the ability to take um, really, really important um, work and indigenous work as well and find a giant audience for it. That was 1984. Um, things went along in the, in the 90s, as you would expect, bigger and bigger, flashier and flashier, and then 9-11 happened. And it actually set um, the whole idea of traveling exhibitions back uh, decades, um, mostly because the security clampdowns that came in the, as a result of it made getting insurance um, very, very difficult, um, getting indemnity very difficult. And um, freight costs just skyrocketed after that. So there was a real lull um, for a while after 9-11 in terms of big traveling exhibitions. The one that rebooted the concept was um, the first of the terracotta uh, army exhibitions that came out of China. And again, it was the British Museum that instigated this. Um, this is 2007. Um, 850,000 people came to see it, and it was um, it was a sensation, and it went on to tour many cities in the world. I think I think this one came to Sydney, and um, and was huge. Um, and today, um, after those mid 2000s, you've 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 seen a gradual buildup of large uh, of large exhibitions. Um, this one's the cues to get into the uh, V&A to see the Savage Beauty, the Alexander McQueen exhibition. Uh, VNA plays it a little quick and loose with their um, with their stats, um, so it's a little hard to tell which was the most popular one they've ever had. They said that about David Bowie. Um, I think this one probably was ahead, six hundred sixty-five thousand people, and over the first five months, it had the highest average daily visitation that that museum had ever had. And as you know, they've had some very large exhibitions, um, uh, so pretty impressive. Um, so that's what um, historically led up to the idea of big, big exhibitions moving around the world. Um, blockbusters have a terrible uh, reputation in the press. People love them, um, and people come out to see them, and the art press and the art critics are always writing about either how they're terrible or they spell doom for institutions uh, or they're locking up giant gallery spaces that could otherwise be used for more salutary items. Um, 
I know everyone in the room will have an opinion about this, um, but they continue to be made and in fact um, are evolving and changing uh, right under our feet a little bit. One of the ways that they're evolving the quickest is that large commercial entities are uh, rushing as fast as they can to lock up their content. This is something that Jason would have referred to uh, in the opening keynote today. And that lockdown is something that's probably only occurred in, uh, in the last 10 years, um, but it's getting, um, it's getting more and more pervasive everywhere. This is a shot of the Warner Brothers archive, um, and this is the wardrobe from um, one piece of one part of one of the Harry Potter movies. Um, it used to be that, that you can actually see the, I think that's a Gryffindor scarf in the front there. Um, you, um, it, it used to be that these costumes would immediately get recycled. It's very difficult to find a historical movie costume because they tended to just get ripped apart after the movies were finished and then reused for the next movie. Um, and then there came a certain point where um, a lot of pieces started to get auctioned off. And as pieces were auctioned off, they largely went into private collections and they couldn't be accessed as easily by museums or anybody else that wanted to do exhibitions. Um, but the studios got wise and um, now nothing gets recycled. Everything gets saved. They need larger and larger warehouses in which to do it um, because they realize they can monetize what they have. Um, so this is Becky Klein, the head archivist at the Disney Archive. Disney has been very canny about this. They've saved um, decades and decades of, of their material. Um, and uh, there are a lot of treasures in the Disney Archive that are extremely difficult for mortals like you and me to be able to access, um, which is a terrible shame because there are things that can be done um, that's, that are really creative and uh, you know, that are cross-modality with uh, content that are in archives like this. Um, but um, that sort of um, cross-thematic type of use of this material is not the last thing that the studios want. Um, so what you now see uh, is things like this. This is the Hunger Games exhibition, which I believe is still on in Sydney, just on, on Sid in Sydney, Lionsgate. Um, uh, are the owners of the IP for this, um, and they hired a private exhibition company to develop it and tour it around the world, um, which meant that through the entire creation of, of the Hunger Games franchise, everything was saved, everything was, was locked up for one single use. Um, and there were a lot of uh, sort of like-minded institutions to us that would have loved to have had access to that and created their own exhibitions um, about authoritarian governments, for instance, and we don't have access to that stuff as a result of it. Um, another one, um, which is currently on in Taipei, uh, which you may have read a little about, it, is the Avatar exhibition, um, which looked, I haven't seen it, but some of our colleagues have seen it, and it looks like a, a very, very large scale, very immersive, interactive um, environment um, that's created directly with James Cameron, who also tends to save all his stuff. So being able to access bodies of content and bodies of IP, if you're a museum and you want to do something that's outside the remit of your own collection, is getting more and more difficult to do. It's not impossible, um, but it's getting more and more difficult, and I'll go into a bit more detail on that now. Um, you have to make some choices um, about what you want to do in, 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 in terms of where you're going to get your objects and get your content. Um, the most obvious one is to use your own collection. Um, and there are some museums that have collections that they can continue to mine and plumb for amazing content and probably 
the most successful version of this in recent years has been um, the wonderful Te Papa Wales exhibition that has been touring and touring and touring and continues to tour um, and um, has been such a success, especially in the United States. And coming from, uh, again, a very small country, relatively small, small museum uh, by international standards, um, but with um, an incredible collection, um, but, but so canny of them to take one piece of their collection and create a mythos about it and create a compelling story and, and as you can see, a very um, beautiful, immersive environment as well and be able to have that and take that and, and take it to the world and have it be such a success. Not everybody has the luxury of being able to do that with their collection. Often collections um, work really well to create exhibitions for your local catchment, but not necessarily international audiences. Um, and not everybody is a British museum who can send out 100 objects that change the world over to this part of the world, and another 100 over here, and another 100 over here. And they can just keep doing that because they've got enough to spin those things out forever. Um, but this is, this is a model that um, you know, if you can use, you've got a lot of control over your content. You have complete control over it. Um, in most cases, and, and it's, um, uh, you know, it's a great way to go. Another model that's uh, becoming increasingly common because it shares risk across multiple institutions um, is, is partnerships that create one exhibition. So this is the Guillermo del Toro exhibition that uh, was recently at, the, um, at LACMA, uh, Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Um, they were one of the instigators of it, but it was a partnership with Minneapolis Institute of Art and the Art Gallery of Ontario. So three really far-flung institutions that actually don't have a heck of a lot to do with each other, except they're, they're all contemporary art museums. Um, and the body of work that they worked with, which was Guillermo's private collection, is not a fine art collection per se as well. But they came together as a group um, they divided um, the responsibilities, um, curatorial versus publication material versus um, uh, uh, sonography, and, um, and, and divided costs between them. And as a result, they were both able to spread the risk but also share in the success of it. And it was a huge success at LACMA, um, and I'm assuming it's going to do well at the other two. And they will be touring it uh, to other places. I think SFMOMA is taking it. Uh, as well, and possibly some other venues. So that's an interesting model. There haven't been that many examples of it out there where, where risk is shared across international organizations. It's something that I think a lot of museums are looking at right now, but because the costs of doing these big, big exhibitions are getting more and more every year, especially if you have to pay for an outside body of content. Um, and that sort of leads to this point. Um, there is a lot of content that can be found out there in the world that's in the public domain. Again, Jason would have talked about this uh, uh, this morning a little bit. Um, but you have to be very careful. So you see two images here. Um, one is a book, and one is a film still. Um, and you notice the book doesn't have an attribution next to it, because when, uh, Wizard of Oz is in the public domain. You could do a Wizard of Oz exhibition if you want. Your museum could do it. Um, there's no, uh, there's the, the family of L. Frank Baum no longer has uh, a sort of monetary consideration for it. You might want to pay them anyway, but um, uh, but there's no there's no legal reason why somebody couldn't do an interesting interpretive exhibition on the Wizard of Oz. However, in the film still, you see an MGM attribution because you're not going to get to be able to use that unless you pay MGM a, a tremendously large bucket load of money, um, which could probably um, have a certain chilling effect on you doing a Wizard of Oz exhibition. 
Um, and that's, uh, that's something that all of us are contending with right now when, when you're trying to pick a topic out of the public domain, are how much of it is actually there and how much of it is going to be locked up in buckets of IP and other places that you're going to have to nego negotiate to try to use. Um, there's um, a, a really nice Sherlock Holmes exhibition running around. I think there may actually be more than one, but there's one particular one that's very, very, uh, very, very nice one right now. The, the Sherlock Holmes um, books that, that were originally written by Conan Doyle are all in the public domain. So the concept of Sherlock Holmes, hence why we have so many moving image iterations of it out there in the world, is free to use. Um, but most of the uh, ancillary um, uh, content that's been created around Sherlock Holmes is not. So to be able to do a, a, a Sherlock Holmes exhibition of your own versus paying to bring the touring exhibition version of it into your museum, you'd have to think long and hard about that. Um, I don't want to talk about touring a little bit. Um, there are museums that um, do have the wherewithal to be able to create exhibitions and then tour them themselves. Um, it's not that common. Um, uh, the science uh, museums tend to do it more successfully than anybody because they can create small, very hands-on exhibitions on, on um, topics that, that are well-bounded and they can send them out to like-minded science centers around the world. But big universal museums um, struggle with this because the, uh, um, the upfront cash flow to be able to do this is quite high. Building exhibitions that have the infrastructure that can tour is very expensive. Um, Tipapa, as I mentioned before, does it extremely well. We've been very lucky uh, that we've got two big exhibitions that are touring in the world right now, Game Masters, which is our history of video games. This is uh, it installed in the National Museum of Scotland. Uh, and it's been touring for uh, since 2000, uh, end of 2012. Um, and it's been uh, to New Zealand, Asia, uh, North America, Europe, and now it's back in North America again, and really with no end in sight right now except the cost of upkeep and relicensing the material in it. Um, and I need one more shot of it there. Um, and uh, we're touring our DreamWorks uh, animation exhibition, which was a partnership with DreamWorks Animation Studio. Um, in that particular case, we were able to um, work directly with the studio that, that, that allowed us to access their, their IP and their content. We had to pay for it. You always are going to have to pay for it. Um, but if you can come up with a compelling argument uh, to create something that's mutually beneficial to both parties, you have a much better chance of actually being able to form a partnership rather than going to somebody and, and just trying to do a straight payment for some IP because most people won't do it at this point. Um, they usually believe that they can hold on, if they hold on to themselves, they can monetize it more highly. So we've been really lucky um, with our two We've got another homegrown one that's in development right now that, that we'll be touring, and we hope to be able to keep doing this. But besides us and Tipapa in this part of the world, there are a handful of others that will tour occasionally, but in terms of being able to run really large touring offices, um, uh, it, it, it is a big commitment, uh, and it's a big risk, um, and it needs the support of government if you're a government-funded uh, institution and, 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 a, and a very... Um, uh, uh, a risk-friendly board to be able to, to put that upfront cash into it. Um, there's a few things that I think are really important to remember uh, if you're uh, embarking in this area, and one is what you're up against um, out there in the world. So if you're creating your own exhibition or you're bringing in an exhibition 
and you're tr and you need to market that exhibition against um, the best and the brightest that's out there right now. Um, there are some very odd pockets of areas that are doing extremely well that um, uh, uh, that are kind of your competition, even if they're not in the same city as you, because what's happening in the in the world is raising the expectations of the visitor about what you're going to be showing. Um, how many people in this room have been to a Madame Tussauds wax museum? Whoa. I thought there'd be no, but I thought museum people would never set foot in a Madame Tussauds. I can't believe there's like 20%. That's amazing. I literally thought I was going to be the only one that's ever been to Madame Tussauds. Well, I went to the one in Times Square so that I could see the Ghostbusters VR um, uh, installation that was there, and uh, because I had been told that it was the absolute state of the art of VR right now, and, and I think it probably was from a commercial standpoint, it was uh, it was amazing. Um, it's a it's a short experience, about twenty minutes, and it's quite expensive, as you might expect. Um, the queues were very long uh, to get in, and it had injected life into. Madame Tussauds that I didn't think they would ever be able to do again. The rest of that place is very scary. Um, and um, the, 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 the quality level of, of, excuse me, of delivery in this is so high that what I brought back with me as a lesson learned was that um, we can't assume that if we just produce something that we can afford and it's going to be kind of fun, that internationally visitors are going to, are going to take to that because they're going to be comparing it to this kind of thing. Um, another example is um, uh, uh, a, a little bit more in our area is the Iron Man ride at, uh, at Hong Kong Disneyland. Now, you don't necessarily think that you're competing with Hong Kong Disneyland, um, but again, this is an absolute state-of-the-art uh, um, piece of immersive theater. Um, and this is the kind of thing, actually, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're looking to do something that's of this level, you need to be thinking of this kind of attraction right now. Um, and if you're not, you're actually probably, um, you're, you're, you're undermining your audience a little bit, or you're not giving your audience enough credit about, about managing expectations. The last thing I'd say is to try to stay off that. Um, the, um, the, the idea of bringing in big exhibitions, the idea of, of, of just bringing in somebody else's or, or creating your own, um, does tend to put you on a hamster wheel um, with your, especially with your funders or the people that are keeping track of your KPIs, um, because they do bring in a lot of revenue. They bring in a lot of associated costs, and once you get on that cycle, um, it's very alluring to continue to do it. But um, and it tends to bring in new sponsors. Um, you can use it if you're if you're canny to bring in new audiences and to and to hone your audience development strategy um, to really capture them, but. You have to ask a lot of questions. Um, you know, w what am I not doing in my spaces that I am doing by bringing somebody else's content in, or or creating something that's sort of mass marketed out to as large an audience as possible? Um, am I am I doing a disservice to my own collection? Am I doing a disservice to the audience mix that's in my city? Um, am I only focusing on one audience in order to get as much in? And it's these are the kind of very complicated questions that when you're developing a strategy, you want to be asking yourself. Um, we really enjoy um, being able to work both on the very intimate level, like our Bombay Talkies exhibition, um, uh, and then creating really big things that serve really, really large family audiences and attract people in from uh, all over Australia and internationally, um, because we think we've got a remit to do both as the Australian Center of the Moving Image. Um, but it's just something you want to go into with your eyes open before you, uh, uh, before you decide on that big content on that blockbuster. And that's it for me. I'd love to answer any questions if you have them.
So, any questions? Forgive me, I'm a bit blind, I can't see. Up, oh, just over there. Do you want to wait for the microphone so everyone can hear? Thank you. Jason said um, no soliloquies, but my museum was in, it's the Burke Museum in Beechworth, ladies and gentlemen, was, was part of the um, Paris World Expo in 1889, and they had 32 million visitors that came and... Um, I just wanted to say there was a blockbuster. So. That's yeah. a true blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's not a question, but I think it's worth noting that those expos, you know, for antiquarians back in the 19th century were pretty huge. Yeah. Yep. Uh, we've got time for at least one other. Can I see one? Um, well, I've got one for you. All right. You talked about partnerships, and what do you think is the ideal split between partners? Um, ideally, ideally, you hold on to curatorial in one, um, in one institution rather than dividing curatorial tasks amongst institutions. It's sort of trying to hold on to your authorial voice. Um, it's, a, it's an asset to be able to have all your curators working together and with your exhibition developers or your interpreters or however your 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 uh, uh, museum is organized. Um, that that's a personal bias. Um, uh, I I think there's probably other ways to do it because if you've got centers of expertise that are spread around the world and everybody can contribute. But in terms of creating one voice, and then ideally if you can do that in one place, and and then um, the exhibition design can be nested, whether it's in that place or it's somewhere else. I think that that would work really well. There's other things that can be that can be done sort of in remote areas with partners like um, uh, the, the actual gathering of the content itself um, and working with archives or working with content sources around the world can be done and that can be quite expensive and that can be done by one entity um, whereas the curatorial framework and the interpretation of it can be done by another but I think if you can if you can keep those those buckets of activity sort of cohesive between museums it probably it probably works the best that's what my gut tells me okay uh, thank you Russell great thanks You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.